there hardly seems a more discussed and debated topic these days than that of authority. Authority in life, in government, in society. Uh, people are talking a lot about authority, even if they don't know they're always talking about authority. But for example, questions recently asked are, you know, what kind of authority does the government have during a global pandemic? What kind of authority do teachers have over their curriculum? How does that square with the rights and authority of parents over their children's education? What's the authority that political leaders have over government secrets? Are police a legitimate authority that should be respected? Why should our bodies be considered authoritative for who we can or cannot marry? Uh, we live in a day and age thoroughly confused about the topic of authority. To lead, to have authority in life is to be valued, to be seen as impressive. To follow or submit makes you disposable and unimportant. And of course, we don't have to look far to see myriads of abuses of authority. Uh, today in America, one in four women experience sexual abuse. That uh, number is one in six for men. More than 15 million children witness domestic abuse every single year in the United States. So is authority inherently repressive, inherently damaging? You know, I think for Christians this can be confusing because we know that God is the ultimate authority. So we think, okay, authority must be good in some sense, but you know, it's power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. We see the abuses of authority so widespread in our society, and we think, what does it mean for God to have authority? What does it mean when God then entrusts that authority and delegates it, delegates it even to his people, even to his creatures? Uh, so to help answer these questions this morning, we're going to be in Colossians 3, so let me encourage you to turn there now. We'll spend our time in verses 18 and 19 this morning. Uh, the book of Colossians was written around 60 AD from a Roman prison. Paul was there, and Epaphras had traveled from modern-day Turkey to Rome to give him an update on the church. There had been some false teaching in the church related to um, kind of asceticism and false spiritualities that said, that insisted you had to pay attention to these spiritual beings, have knowledge of them, and have spiritual practices related to them, because you were not full in Christ, Christ was not a sufficient savior. You needed to add on. And so uh, in chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, Paul refuted the idea that asceticism and man-made religion could subdue the flesh and our sinful desires. Instead, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3 or 4, uh, Paul said that the, the true foundation of, of growing in godliness is setting our mind on the things above. And then Paul got practical. Uh, in the Christian life, you need to put sin to death. And you need to take off anger and, and all these other behaviors, these fruits of the flesh. And you need to put on compassion and love, peace, patience, as you speak the word of Christ to one another and remain thankful. And that's when we come to our passage this morning. Uh, you'll note if you have an ESV, uh, chapter 3, verse 18, all the way to 4.1 is kind of grouped together. My ESV heading says, Rules for Christian Households. That, that's a great heading. We're going to focus in on verses 18, or excuse me, yeah, 18 and 19 
this morning. We're going to zoom in on marriage. Okay, why are we doing that? Scott, you've been taking like six verses at a time. Now you're taking two verses. Why are we zooming in here? It's not because marriage is the point of the book of Colossians, right? Paul gives two verses to husbands and wives in four chapters. It's not because marriage is the point of life or the point of the Christian life. It's the highest good in life. No, that's just not true. But it is true that our culture is very confused about what it means to be man and woman, what it means to be husband and wife. And so the the world is catechizing us, discipling us, teaching us. And if we're not careful, our intuitions about marriage, about gender, about uh, masculinity and femininity are going to be shaped by the culture and not by God's word. And so we're kind of zooming in to try to pay attention, to make sure that we're understanding what God's word says and make sure that we can apply it to our lives. Um, So if you're single, let me encourage you not to check out of this sermon. I just kind of say like, all right, I can relax for the next 45 minutes. Uh, Because if you're single, God might call you to marriage one day. And also because you need to be helping, if you're a Christian, your brothers and sisters to obey the Lord and follow God's commands. And so, you know, you need to understand what God is calling them to so that you can help them and pray for them and encourage them in that task. Tonight, we're going to think more about the theology of singleness and um, kind of how how that relates to the Christian life. So uh, married folks, let me encourage you not to skip out on tonight's 5 p.m. prayer service. Don't just say, oh, it's for singles. No, it's it's for all of us because singles need to care about married folk and married folk need to care about singles and how we love and serve one another. So Lord willing, that'll be tonight at 5 p.m. at the prayer service at Lutheran Church of the Savior. Let me encourage you to come back tonight to think more about theology of singleness. Uh, But for now, the main idea of of today's passage, and actually of next week's as well, we're going to cover the parenting and uh, bond servants and masters next week. But the main idea for today is this. In every season of life, live for the Lord. In every season of life, live for the Lord for the Lord. I'm going to start reading in chapter 3, verse 12, because that's the the context that we find. Uh, So look with me, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Amen. Well, the reason we we read the context is because verses 18 and 19, and and again, the, the rules for the Christian household, it all flows out of actually verse 14. Above all, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul's going to be talking about how in the Christian household we live in perfect harmony, how we relate to one another and love and serve one another. 
And the foundation of that is love. The Christian ethic, most fundamentally, is one of love. Not just kind of mushy feelings of sentimentality, uh, but genuine affection leading to action. And so first we see that, that Paul is going to address wives and husbands. And um, just, just as a side note here, um, sometimes people have, have taken on something known as standpoint epistemology, which is that you can only address people uh, based on your own lived experiences. So uh, men can only address men, women can only address women, and that's kind of the, the basis on which we can discuss things with one another. Paul here is neither a wife nor a husband. He's not a child or a parent. He's not a bondservant or a master. And yet he thinks that on the basis of God's revelation, what he has to share is important. And so I think it's just important that we note that, of course, our experience in life gives us wisdom, our experiences of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, husband or wife, child or parent, all those things are really valuable and important. Um, but we need to make sure that we don't let personal experience uh, crowd out the authority of God's word. So here we shouldn't be skeptical of Paul as the messenger simply because he's a man or simply because he's unmarried. Um, we should rather attune our ears to God's word. And so what we have here in verses 18 and 19 Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Uh, what we have here is kind of what's commonly known these days as complementarianism. That's kind of the word that sometimes is thrown around, uh, which states that men and women are equal in dignity and value and worth because men and women are both created in the image of God. Uh, there's not a, a hierarchy of value. No one is more essential or important or valued in God's eyes. God delights in men and women. He created them both. Uh, First Peter describes men and women as the co-heirs of life. So not only are men and women equal in their value and worth in creation, they're equal in salvation as well. It's not as if women are more important in the Christian life, or as if men are more important in the local church. No, not at all. Men and women are both co-heirs of life. So they're equal in dignity, value, and worth, uh, but what you see here is what kind of complementarianism talks about is that men and women have different roles in the church and in the home. And this decision wasn't arbitrary as if God flipped a coin and things just came out this way. Uh, rather, God has designed the woman to flourish in her role, and God has designed the man to flourish in his role. Uh, neither role in the home or in the church is more... Um, more important or better or more valued than the other, uh, but rather men and women are working together differently, but working together to accomplish that same task. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That's a command that God has given to men and women. Uh, that's a command that we need each other for, uh, that the Adam and Eve couldn't fulfill on their own, right? And so it's something that we have complementary strengths to this single task. And so what we see here in marriage is the equality of, of value in different roles. Uh, one commentator, Alistair Roberts, reminds us, our differences in marriage and in the home are not merely differences from each other, but they are actually differences for each other. The sacred order of man and woman includes a profound interdependence. 
All right, so let's just look first at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The first thing we should note is that this is not saying women submit to all men. It's, it's not saying that. In fact, it, it, it's really freeing from that expectation at all. One woman, a wife, is called to submit to one man, her husband. And so we should ask, what does submission mean? We should note a, first, a couple things. First, submission is something that all humans do. Submission is something that all humans do, right? Nobody is totally lawless. God ordains police officers and road signs, elementary school teachers, parents, village elders, cultural traditions, board game rules. Uh, All of us submit in various aspects of our lives. If you didn't pay attention to the road signs, it would go really badly, right? If you don't play the board game by the rules, nobody enjoys it. All of us in life, in so many different areas, submit. And of course, everyone will fully and finally submit to God on the last day. You remember what Philippians 2 says, that uh, every, everyone above in the heavens, on earth, and under the earth will submit. Every knee will bow to King Jesus on the final day. So number one, all humans submit. And then number two, submission is something that all Christians are called to do. In Romans 13, Paul says that Christians are, sub- are to submit to the government. In Hebrews 13, Christians are to submit to church leaders. In Ephesians 6, children are to submit to parents, bondservants to masters. And of course, most of all, as Christians, what does it mean but to submit and follow the Lord Jesus? Right? We take his easy yoke upon ourselves. So submission isn't a dirty word. It's not a demeaning word. It's something that all of us are committed to. And even, for example, you know, Mark, thank you for praying for us. I, I really appreciate it. I, one of the things that has been such a blessing to have Dave, Dave and Mark as elders is now I have men that I'm submitting to as fellow elders of this church. So there's just no one in life that is not called to submit. But so, okay, third, what does submission mean? Uh, One writer, Abigail Dodd, she writes, to submit means to willingly come under the authority of another. Submission means to willingly come under the authority of another. Notice that this does not, again, imply a, a differentiation of value. It doesn't imply that one person is better or worse than another. You would never say that children are less valuable than their parents because they're called to submit. You would never say that, that citizens are less valuable than the government because they're called to submit. It's just not true. Okay, but so authority, uh, rather submission here means to willingly come under the authority of another. And so I think it's important that we ask, well, why are wives called to submit here? And uh, I, you know, We've seen throughout the book of Colossians how Colossians and Ephesians are really parallel in so many ways. You look at Ephesians verses, you're not quite sure what they mean, and you look in the book of Colossians, you're like, ah, that's what it means. You look in Colossians, and then you look to Ephesians, you're like, ah, that's what Colossians means. And so I was so thankful that Ashley was able to read the Ephesians 5 passage, because that kind of fleshes out more of what Paul means and what he's talking about here uh, when he's talking about men and women, husbands and wives. And so you noted from the the Ephesians 5 passage 
that the Apostle Paul says that the husband is the head of his wife. What's really important, this was, um, I, I really was just kind of struck by this a few years ago, that the Apostle Paul does not summon or call or command men to be the heads of their wives. It's not an imperative, but an indicative. It is the case that the husband is the head of his wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. So men are not called to be the head of their wives. Ephesians 5 says that they are. And it's in light of that, the wives are told to submit the body to the head and that the men are called to love. Uh, there, there is a fittingness between the role that the, the husband is as head and what he's called to. And there's a role, there's a fittingness between what the woman is and what she is called to. And so husbands or wives are both meant to flourish as they go along with the grain of creation, the way God made the universe. So here, here's, again, just to maybe go to the analogy of, of parents and children, God has ordained the parents to be in authority over the children, not because the children are not amazing, but God has ordained that to be the natural order in the household. When the children rebel and try to usurp the authority of the parents, it doesn't lead to the flourishing of the children or the parents, right? Because they're going against the way that God made the world. The command matches the way things are. That's what we see here with the husbands and wives. The husband is the, the head of his wife, and so the wife is called to submit, not because that will destroy her life or destroy his life in any way, but that that will lead to their flourishing. God does not upend the created order and salvation. He doesn't destroy the way that we're made as male and female. He rather works within these bounds. And so when we go along with the flow of creation, what it means to be a husband and wife, uh, there we find flourishing and harmony. What does it mean to, uh, it says, as is fitting in the Lord? Um, I think Paul is just simply saying there is a, a properness, a fittingness of, of who you are as women made in the image of God, the glory of men, the glory of the glory. Uh, so if, if kind of humanity, mankind is the, the, the crowning achievement of creation, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul describes the, the wife as the, the glory of man. So the woman is the crown jewel of creation, kind of the most beautiful and elegant and majestic and glorious aspect of creation. And so the point here is that the wife as created in the image of God and the glory of man, the crown jewel of creation, it's appropriate still for her not to seek to rule over her husband, but rather to submit, uh, to follow their lead and example. Now, of course, I think it's extremely important that we, we state right away um, that we never, ever give anyone total authority in our lives. We never give ultimate submission to anyone other than Christ. Okay, so let's go back to maybe the, the citizens in government. What does Romans 13 say? You better submit. Pay your taxes. You know, First Peter, honor the emperor. As Americans, that strikes us. You know, that's difficult sometimes. Man, do I really have to pay these taxes? Romans 13 says, yes, you do. We really have to pay attention and submit to the governing authorities. But it's not an ultimate submission, is it? Because do you remember in Acts chapter 5, when the governing authorities in Jerusalem commanded the apostles, don't go preaching anymore about this Jesus guy. Do you remember what the apostles said? We ought to obey God. 
rather than man. We're not going to do it. You're telling us to sin. I know you're an authority that we should listen to, but you are commanding something that is wicked. I'm not doing it. So only Christ gets our full and final submission. He is the only full and final authority. We don't follow someone's lead when they're commanding us into sin. Rather, we follow Christ at all times. I think it's important that we note here that when Paul, in this uh, Rules for Christian Households, addresses the three groups in the non-authoritative position, he always roots their submission, not in culture or convenience, but in Christ. That's really important for this week and next week. Uh, this is how we know that these commands are transcultural. This wasn't just, you know, a patriarchal time. Paul was a misogynist, and uh, he was biased, and that this is just something for them and then. The reason we know that it applies 2,000 years later is because Paul roots it in the Lord. You notice that. Uh, so again, at the end of verse 18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then just a few verses later, children, verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. And then verse 23, addressing bond servants, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about bond servants and masters and how we should understand Paul's commands there. How, you know, again, how, how do we think through what this means for us 2,000 years later? But I do think it's important that we see um, that these commands are not rooted in something temporal that might change or come and go. It's rooted in the very uh, command of God and what pleases the Lord. And, then, and I'll talk about this a little bit in a moment about the husband's command to love. But I think the fact that the commands are rooted in the Lord is really helpful. It's really helpful because if our, if our obedience to Christ, if the wife's submission, the husband's love, if it was based on their spouse, the kind of the, the way their spouse had been treating them, well then, you know, we're just never going to get around to obeying these commands. It's never going to be the case that a husband is so respectable and so godly and so upright that a wife can just always and completely joyfully submit. That's not, just who, that's not who I am. That's not who husbands are. We're sinners. And so if, as a wife, you're waiting for your husband to be perfect, you're never going to get around to submitting. And husbands, if you're waiting around for your wife to demonstrate perfect patience and humility and joy and, you know, just she just needs to be 100% perfect, you're never going to get around to loving her. And, and you're going to think to yourself, well, I, you know, I can be harsh here because she's been harsh with me. I, I can be demeaning here. I don't need to be sacrificial here because, I mean, can you believe the way she's been treating me? As Christians, we, if our love is dependent upon other people, if our motivation for the Christian life is how other people will treat us, we're never going to get around to obeying. But when our obedience is rooted in the Lord and what pleases him, well, then we're freed. Because the Lord, when he is our strength and our portion, we have limitless resources, limitless resources to love and serve others. Now, now, what do we do about the fact that this verse 18 sounds really hierarchical? Right? I mean, it's just wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Uh, as Americans, we don't like hierarchy. 
people being above and below others in authority. Uh, July 4th is basically a celebration of how we got rid of the British authority. We're like, we didn't want that. We want to be the authority. We don't want to submit. So how do we, as Americans, you know, how, how do... How do we apply verse 18? Why? It's, it just kind of grates against our, our natural intuitions, intuitions and instincts. Well, I, I think if we dig deeper, I think we see there's actually hierarchy all around us. Uh, it's, not race, it's not based on race or gender or family of origin here in America, but there is a kind of meritocracy, right? There's a hierarchy based on ability and degrees and work. And so it's not so much hierarchy that we dislike, it's that which seems unjust and undeserved hierarchy. That's what kind of grates against us. And so make no mistake, God hates injustice, right? He hates those who take a bribe, those who pervert justice and oppress the poor and needy. God is a refuge for the widow and orphan and sojourner. So God hates oppressive, abusive, manipulative hierarchies of whatever kind they are. However, we, we do need to realize that, you know, we live in a very egalitarian society. And so that just kind of, again, it kind of puts us on edge a little bit when we get commands like this. But I do think we need to realize that there, there's a hierarchy, for example, in the Garden of Eden. And there will be a hierarchy in heaven. It says the, the apostles will kind of have some kind of ruling authority. And that believers, based on how faithful or unfaithful we were in this life, with the good works and what God has entrusted to us, we will have different rewards and different authority in the new heavens and new earth. So we see that under Jesus, authority can be used well. Again, sadly, in our day and age, it is often not used well. Uh, it is often used for the advantage of the one in authority, not for the blessing and protection and benefit of those under the authority. But we need to be very clear that different roles does not imply different values or worth. Think of the Trinity. Think of how the Father sends the Son, the Son saves, the Spirit accomplishes. God has totally different, the, the three persons of the Trinity have totally different roles in salvation. And that in no way implies a kind of hierarchy of value. You know, the Father is not more divine than the Son. The Spirit is not less divine than the Father. They are all truly God, equal in dignity, eternity, glory, and praiseworthiness. And yet they have different roles. So when we see that the wife is graciously submitting to her husband, she's helping him fill the earth and subdue it. She is thus filling, fulfilling Eve's role from Genesis 2 of being a helper. Of course, that's not an insult for a woman any more than it is an insult to the man. When God said, you need a helper, that's, that's not an insult at all to the man or to the woman. God is described as Israel's helper. And so the wife here, when she submits to her husband, well, it's not an insult to her or her husband. Our differences are not from one another as much as they are for one another. So that's verse 18. What should we do about verse 19? Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It's really interesting that Paul does not say, husbands, lead your wives. He doesn't say, husbands, make sure they submit to you. He doesn't say that. No, he says, husbands, love your wives. The way that I, I define love, I think, I think biblically it's, it's accurate, 
is sincere affection leading to sacrificial action. Love is sincere affection leading to sacrificial action. I think it's important that we note that complementarian isn't women sit down, but men stand up and lay down your lives. Because, of course, that's what Paul says in Ephesians 5, again, our parallel passage, that's what Christ has done. Husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loves the church. So I will say this is the hardest, I mean, this is, this is one of the hardest commands in the Bible. There are lots of hard commands in the Bible uh, that God gives grace to obey, praise God. You know, like the kind of, the stakes here to represent Christ in his, the depths of his love and humility and service are incredible. This is one of the hardest commands to obey. How, how does Christ love the church? How, how should husbands love their wives? We could spend a whole sermon series on this question. That's basically the Bible. The Bible is a depiction of how Christ loves his bride, the great lengths that he's gone to serve her. We, we could note a few things. Number one, he loves his wife compassionately. I love the way Dave put it earlier. You know, Christ loves his wife, loves the bride, loves the church. He lays down his life for her, and he didn't do it reluctantly or begrudgingly. He did it in joy and with compassion. Jesus said, there's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. There is no greater love or warmth or compassion or delight than the affection that Jesus has for his people. And this is the kind of regard that husbands should have for their wives. Jesus loves his church prayerfully. You think about all the time in Jesus' earthly ministry that he set aside time. Uh, you know, the Gospel of Mark says he got up early and went away to pray. Uh, in John 17, we see the high priestly prayer, Jesus interceding for his people. Even now, Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, praying for his people, bringing our requests to the throne room of grace. And he prayed for us while on earth. He prays for us while in heaven. And so it is that husbands should pray for their wives. That's one of the ways they love them and follow Jesus' example. Uh, Christ loves his wife eschatologically. Uh, that is with an eye towards the last day, right? Ephesians 5, he's working to present her holy and blameless on that last day. He's not content to just look at the here and now, but he's focused on that day, on what I am doing to present her holy and blameless before the throne of God. So husbands should work for their wife's sanctification in sincerity and love. Because, of course, the, wife, the husband, when he loves his wife, is loving his own body, as Paul said in Ephesians 5. Uh, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're married, as a husband, your closest neighbor is your wife that's the one that you need to be laying down your life for and working for her good on the last day. Christ washes his wife with the water of the word, the bride, the church. This is how the church gets holy. Uh, through time, through the word of God, being applied to her. This is something that husbands should take care in. We'll get more into the, the application in a few moments. Uh, Jesus loves his bride perseveringly. Praise God 
Jesus does not give up on the church. Uh, Praise God, Jesus sees our flaws and he doesn't abandon us. In our sin and in our suffering, he rather draws closer and nearer to comfort us and to help us. He bears patiently with us. He knows our flaws and he still loves us. And then, of course, sacrificially, he lays down his very life for her. There is no greater sacrifice Christ could give. There are no depths that Christ could go any further. He loves his wife by laying down his life for her. And then, of course, Paul says, husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Do not be harsh with them. In many, in, in many and horrible ways, since Genesis 3, men, and husbands in particular, have often ruled over their wives with harshness, with abuse and cruelty and violence. And of course, God absolutely hates such domineering in marriage and in life. So there is a special wickedness of abusing authority to hurt those under it. That's not the way God uses his authority. He uses his authority to bless and bring life and flourishing. And so here, husbands are called to never be harsh in their words, to be uncaring or vicious or manipulative. They're called to never be harsh in their actions, uh, never to take advantage of their physical strength to intimidate or punish or threaten or neglect their wives. Paul makes it absolutely clear that being the head, being an authority, is not a license for harshness or authoritarianism. Rather, husbands are to be gentle with their wives. We covered this in that, uh, I think it's verse 12 of chapter 3. We we talked about what gentleness is. A number of you said you appreciated this quote. So um, this is a definition of gentleness, and I think it's a great application of, of what it looks like in marriage. Gentleness is not the absence of strength. That's just weakness. Gentleness is the addition of virtue to that strength. One must first be strong. One must first have some power to be able then to add the virtue of gentleness to that power. Gentleness then is the ability to cushion the strength, ability, and the power one has so that it brings life and not harm to those who are under leadership and guidance. This is the kind of gentleness that Paul is calling husbands to. Uh, Paul is calling all those who would seek to lead and love and serve their wives. Now, as we kind of move towards the end and as we think about what what this looks like in in day-to-day, and I I do want to end up there, um, we do need to remember, most of all, that Jesus is the perfect example of submission and leadership, right? Uh, Jesus is the one who came in obedience to his heavenly Father, In John 12, Jesus says, For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father sent me. He has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So Jesus is the perfect example of an equal submitting to an equal. His submission to the Father didn't make him any less than the Father. No, it was rather his glory that his humility was evidence in his submission to his heavenly father. And then, of course, in Mark 10, what our assurance of pardon was earlier, uh, Jesus is the perfect example of using authority to serve those under it. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, Jesus didn't use his authority and power for his own advancement and comfort, 
Rather, he laid down his life. And so what the truth is, whether husband or wife, man or woman, we all must follow Jesus' example of taking up our cross daily. Husbands and wives are both called to this task. Because submission is hard, right? We all want to be in charge. We're all like James and John who came to Jesus in Mark 10 seeking authority and advancement. And yet Jesus reminds us that submission doesn't indicate lesser value. Jesus reminds us that the way up is down. And husbands, men, loving your wife is hard. You need to take up your cross to do this. In fact, if your response to Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, you read those passages, husbands, if your response is, whew, you don't understand it. If you read these passages and you're like, all right, I'm in charge, you just show like how massively you have missed the boat. Husbands, you are to take up your cross just like Jesus did and lay down your life for your wife just like Jesus did. As husbands and wives in, the mar- in marriage, in the Christian life for all of us, we all must take up our crosses, and thus we all require God's grace, God's Holy Spirit, to put sin to death, to put on righteousness. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, the fundamental call for you is not to be a husband, and wi- be a husband or be a wife, be good at it, but it is to look at Jesus, to consider his perfect righteousness, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, to put your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And it is out of the overflow of his work in you that then we obey in all of life. Not just in our marriage, not just in our money, not just in our time, but we give our entire selves to Christ because he has given his entire self to us. We will never out-sacrifice Jesus. And so all of our obedience is always in response to the love that he's given to us. We're gonna end with two sections. Super practically, what does submission look like? Super practically, what does, look, what does loving like Christ look like? Um, in these two sections, I'm gonna to try to paint a picture. Sorry, we actually have three sections. We've got one final comment after that. Uh, I'm gonna to try to paint a picture. I'm gonna give examples. I do, it's kind of like Proverbs 31. I don't intend for you to necessarily apply every single one of these. Uh, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. But I'm just going to want to list some ways that wives you can submit to your husbands. I'm going to list some ways, husbands, you can love your wives and not be harsh with them. And uh, we can chat more over dinner tonight. Uh, if, you, if you have questions, uh, I've got the list here if you want to talk more about it. So you probably won't be able to take all these down. So super practically, what does submission for a wife look like in marriage? Well, again, submission is not reluctant or begrudging, but it's joyful and trusting. Submission is not being a doormat. Your husband needs your wisdom and help. Adam needed a helper. Your husband today needs a helper. He needs your input and experience in wisdom and godliness and example in industry. Um, as you submit, be hospitable as he leads. Uh, as, as husbands and wives, you know, it's a three-legged race in kind of everything. Uh, so just one example, be hospitable as he leads. If he likes to be very hospitable, seek to be very hospitable. If he likes to be less hospitable with your home and have more time as a family, then try to lean into that. If your husband desires to move for missions or a new job or to be near family, consider how you can support him in that. 
Uh, let him take the lead on thinking through the children's schooling and what's best for your family and your circumstances and your situation. Uh, wives, cultivate a home that he enjoys being in. It's not just decorated for and by women, but that a husband and kids can enjoy. Uh, have the husband take the lead in establishing budget and financial priorities. Uh, wives, submit as your husband seeks to have family discipleship and family worship and what that looks like. Uh, seek ways where you can support his leadership in the home and in the church and in society. And yet as you do it, recognize that it would be absolute folly for the husband to say, I don't care what you think. I'm just doing it my way. Uh, if your husband is leading and loving and serving well, he knows that he does not have all the answers. And he will regularly turn to you and say, what do you think we should do? What do you think would be the best and wisest course of action? Proverbs, Proverbs 31 shows such an amazing, diligent, godly, caring, nurturing wife. Uh, what a blessing and help she is. And praise God for the many such women in this congregation, the many such wives who do these things. Super practically, what does it look like for a husband to love like Christ? Um, again, love is genuine affection leading to sacrificial action. Husbands, pursue your wives. Pursue them romantically, emotionally, intellectually. Seek to study them and learn them and know what they love and desire. Uh, learn what her hobbies are, what her interests and fears and hopes and dreams are. Uh, what is she struggling with? What is she praying for? Uh, if as you know, Christians, the, the New Testament commands that we should weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, that's true in the church. How much more so should it be in the home? Husbands, don't just seek to be roommates, but love your wives as your own bodies. Uh, live with your wife in an understanding way, as First Peter says. Pursue her spiritual good by finding a good church, ensuring she has time to read her Bible. Pray for her. Repent and confess when you sin against her. You know, spend time with her. Don't just be spending time with sports and friends and work and church and neighborhood that you don't cultivate time with your beloved bride. If she's a mother, give her a break from the kids. Cultivate her female friendships. Protect her and your relationship from family or in-laws or others who might introduce chaos and doubt into your relationship. Ask how she wants to use your vacation time. Uh, does she want time at home, fixing the house, a family vacation somewhere, visiting her parents? Uh, and then do it. Get up early to clean the house or do the dishes. Be faithful to your wedding vows and be sexually pure and devoted to her alone. Give her the better car. Save the last piece of cake for her. Remember your anniversary. Uh, work hard at work so that you can provide financially. Work hard at coming home on time. Don't make an idol of the work. Make sure that she knows that she is under God the most important priority in your life. Ensure that she is the priority and not the kids. Give special weight to her desire and input for the number of children you might have. Uh, ensure the kids submit to her authority. And in all this, do not be harsh. Brothers and sisters, we could you know, help one another by just creating our own list. Like there are just a million ways we can fulfill these commands. I wanna end with the question of why do we care about this? Like, Scott, I thought we were a gospel church. And we talk about Jesus, he dies for our sins, his love, his mercy. Why are we talking about husbands and wives? Now, this seems like a distraction. Well, Matthew 28, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
So actually, when we give ourselves to learning and thinking about what it means to be husband and wife or parents or children or bond servants and masters, employees and employers, we're not, this is not a distraction from the Great Commission. It's rather the fulfillment of it. As, as married individuals, husbands and wives, we don't in any way seek our own good, but the good of our beloved. Jesus says in John 15, my father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We want our lives to be filled with good works because that's not a distraction from the good news of Christ's saving worth. It rather draws attention to it. It rather points to it. Again, Jesus said, by this, the world will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Well, friends, we can't have marriages that are a mess and be speaking the good news of God's truth and his grace. If we would seek to love God, if we would seek to love neighbor, we have to give ourselves to obeying all that God has commanded. God's design for marriage is good for us and it glorifies him. Therefore, wives, submit to your husbands and husbands, love your wives. That as Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 5, your light would shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that in so many ways we, we do fall short of what you've commanded us, whether as husbands or wives or as single people. Uh, Father, we don't tremble before your word the way we ought we don't tremble before our own lives thinking about that final day the way that we ought. We thank you that though we imperfectly fulfill these commands, you love us still. Your mercy and grace are without bounds. Your kindness and your patience knows no limits. We praise you for the sacrifice of your son, which is our only hope. The only hope we have of forgiveness. The only hope we have of empowerment for this. Uh, Father, we pray that you give us help to love and serve one another, uh, to seek the good of one another. We pray that our relationships in the church, we would seek to cultivate that in one another, that we'd hold one another accountable and encourage each other and how best to obey Christ. We pray that you'd show us grace upon grace in this. We are totally dependent upon you and your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, we conclude by singing, O Great God. Uh, you notice that last third verse, Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Uh, that's basically what this sermon was. God, help us to live according to your grace. It's the only way we can fulfill these commands. So let's stand together and sing, O oh, Great God, as we conclude.